This morning, we continue in our journey through the early part of John's Gospel. In this epiphany season of discovery, of people discovering Christ, the Saviour. Now, we could easily think that this morning's passage is just like last week's. You know, there's two disciples that have come to Jesus by the end of it. And that process has been one coming to Christ and then it going, him going and getting the other one. We have familiar phrases. Come and see, spoken by Philip, which is not dissimilar to Jesus' earlier own words to Andrew that we had last week. Come and you will see. And we also have a sense of prophetic speaking of the nature of these new people or insight into their lives. Last week, Simon being called uh, Cephas, Peter, a rock. This week, Nathaniel, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no falsehood, and also the fact that he was sat under the fig tree. But as we look closer at the passage, we discover that this time the story of call is more developed and that the author is gradually revealing to us more and more about Jesus and the people that he is among. Last week it was very much that Andrew and the person who is without name, probably John, decided to follow. But this week, we find that Jesus finds Philip. He goes and seeks the lost. As Jesus is setting off for Galilee, he doesn't simply journey and see who'll follow, who will tag along. He goes and he finds Philip and calls him. And God has a plan for each one of us. He calls us to play a part. And that plan can be established much earlier than we might imagine. We discover in the Old Testament that many of the people are called or taught or learn something while they're still in their mother's womb. In Judges, we hear of Samson. In the Psalms, we hear of David. 
in the books of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, each are being called or instructed while still in their mother's womb. God has the plan and he puts it in place at an early stage. He sets the things in motion. Now, of course, God might have his plan, but that doesn't mean to say that we go along with it. We have free will. We can choose to follow or choose not to follow. Indeed, each of those people I've just uh, mentioned from the scriptures, in some way, either rejected their calling... Or having responded starts to go wayward. We are human. We are tempted to do things that are not right. God's Holy Spirit can give us strength to resist that. But sometimes people do not return. But God longs for us to come back. And the presence of Jesus in the first century Holy Land is a sign that God seeks us. He comes to us and calls us to come to him. And so the approach to Philip is a microcosm of the much bigger picture of Jesus calling all to come back to the way of the Father. We have a God who does not keep distant, but becomes near, becomes flesh, lives among humanity, And then takes the suffering, not of his sins, but ours, upon his shoulders. We see something of the resistance that is in human nature. As we encounter Nathaniel's reaction to Philip's words. Nazareth? Nazareth? Really? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? There's sarcasm, maybe even skepticism in those words. Anything? Really? We might think that that searching question is reasonably well founded. Because none of the Jewish writings from before that time seem to show a reference to Nazareth. It's not spoken of by the prophets. It wasn't in the Old Testament. It wasn't spoken of by priests or rabbis. It's not in the Midrash or Talmud. Some might claim 
that it was alluded to in the Old Testament that the name Nazareth, which comes from the Hebrew um, for branch, um, gives a sense of a picture of a tree. And so, in a sort of rather cryptic crossword style solution, Nazareth is part of the sense of the root of Jesse. I think that's trying to put a square peg in a round hole, personally. It doesn't quite come out. It's just stretching the interpretation of a prophet's words too far. And so Nathaniel is right, perhaps, to be surprised that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is the promised one, the Messiah. But it's the way that he responds is derogatory. Can anything good come from there? I wonder how often today we are dismissive of people that come from somewhere. Be it somewhere in this country or overseas. That we think someone that comes from there, they can't be up to much, can they? Or maybe it's something else. That instead of supporting brothers and sisters in Christ, we speak of them in offensive ways. We fail to show politeness. We take an aggressive stance or an unusual tone. We do not build up the unity of the church, but instead tear it apart. We are all part of one body. If any of us does something which hurts another part, then that is an injury to the whole body of the church. We need to always consider not just what we are saying, because we might have a very valid thing that we need to say, but we need to consider how we say it, how we communicate the thing that we must say. Despite Nathaniel's rejection, despite the way that that rejection is said, Philip is open and says, just come and see. Come and discover. Discover the truth of who Jesus is. Don't come with a preconception. Don't make a judgment based on nothing that you know. Come and see. And it's as they come that Jesus sees who is approaching. Ah. An Israelite in whom there is nothing false. 
an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, no falsehood. I guess Nathaniel is proud of his ancestry. He might be delighted to be recognized as an Israelite. But then again, there's the question of how we say it. I'm proud of my ancestry. It's, it's Burns Night tomorrow. I'm Scottish. And I'm going to Boys Brigade. I don't think, I don't think there's a haggis or anything else on the menu there, to the best of my knowledge. Um, but if someone was to refer to me as a true Scotsman, what would they mean? Would they mean about where I was born, on the right side of the border? Would they maybe be thinking about what I might wear or not wear if I had my kilt on? Not that it fits anymore. It doesn't go around the, even on the loosest bit of the straps. Or are they taking some other stereotype, perhaps suggesting that I have short arms and deep pockets? You know, what does it mean to say that someone is a true Scotsman? What does it mean to say that someone is an Israelite? He's a true Israelite. Sounds positive to begin with, doesn't it? A descendant of Israel, of Jacob. A child who has journeyed through the wilderness in search of the promised land. What is Jesus actually proclaiming? See? True Israelite without deceit. Does that mean the other Israelites are full of falsehood? Of telling things that aren't true? Are they a bit wayward? Well, of course they are. That's why Jesus has come to bring them back to the Father. But there's a sense of what is the heritage there? What is it to be the child of Jacob? Jacob who was holding his brother's heel as he was born. And as a young man proceeded to diddle Esau out of his birthright and of his father's blessing. Is Jesus suggesting that maybe some of the Israelites are not so good? In revealing more and more of what Jesus knows of the newcomer, there is then an awakening in Nathaniel. And it leads to a confession. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He's not just a child of Israel, Jesus. He's the King of Israel. 
And so from having gone, can anything good come from Nazareth? We've gone to the other end and saying the best thing that could come from Nazareth, the best thing that could come to the earth is here, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And it's a bit like that bit at the other end of John's Gospel, where Peter has been saying, no, I don't know this man. This man has nothing to do with me. I'm not one of his followers. But is then given the chance to say, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus gives each one of us a second chance. Where we have gone wrong, we can be forgiven. And as we come to the end of the passage, we find that Jesus, who's maybe just been sowing a little doubt on the character of Israel, gives a positive turn too. He doesn't leave us with a tarnished image of the great patriarch. He instead takes us to that dream of Jacob. And the sense that God was present with him in a place of wilderness. As angels ascended and descended a ladder. Making us think of how God has a plan even for the cheat and the scoundrel. He makes himself known and calls us. But there is more. Because the words that Jesus used here, as he speaks to the disciples he's gathered, he's saying, you will see, is not just addressed at Nathaniel, it's a plural. It's a sense of those disciples, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. For Jacob, the presence of God, seen through the angels ascending and descending, was at a particular location. A particular point, the place that becomes known as Bethel, that he names as Bethel. The house of God, a place of worship, a place where God is close to earth. But here Jesus speaks of the angels ascending and descending on himself, on the Son of Man. Not a location, but on himself. For instead of some point out in the desert, some place on a map the closeness of God is with Jesus the closeness of God 
is with him. Not in the temple, not in the building, but a new temple, that of Christ, our Saviour. We will later remember when we share bread and wine that not simply was was Christ on earth but that he is with us still. His presence is with us today. He meets with us and is still calling us To be his children, his family, to live his way, to be forgiven and have new life. We may be the Israelite, not simply a member of the family, but someone with a hint of waywardness in our past. Someone who has been through a wilderness. Someone on a journey of hope. Jesus welcomes us. He calls us to be with him. He seeks us to be there and seeks us to play our part in the growth of God's kingdom. Amen.